touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm Jonathan Strickland. And I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And when last we left... We were talking about SpaceX. Yeah. And we had gotten up to the year 2009. At which point, SpaceX had successfully launched the Falcon 1 once in a test and once to take a Malaysian satellite up. And with these resounding successes said, you know, let's retire that one. Let's build something bigger, bigger and better. Yes, we can make it bigger, faster, stronger. So 2010, they launch a successful test of a Falcon 9 rocket. It's eight better than the Falcon 1. Uh, you might ask, well, why did they go from 1 to 9? Like, what happened to Falcons 2 through 8? Well, the 9 doesn't refer to the version. Uh, it, no. It refers to how many um, engines are in the first stage of the rocket. Yes, it has nine Merlin engines in that first stage. It is also a two-stage rocket. Yes. So like the Falcon 1, it's a two-stage rocket. But unlike the Falcon 1, it had nine engines instead of just one engine. Uh, still was a liquid, uh, liquid fuel engine, liquid oxygen and kerosene specifically, and used, uh, alumin- aluminum lithium alloy tanks. Now, according to SpaceX, the nine engines provide more thrust than five 747s at full power. Now, I should stress that's the current Falcon 9, because over the course of the last few right. years, yeah, Falcon 9's gotten, pardon the pun, a bit of a boost over the last, uh, okay, I'm sorry. I regret everything I've said. Uh, no, but, but it is, it, it has, uh, improved over the years as they've worked on it. So the, the figures we have for the Falcon 9 really reflect the most recent version of the rocket, not the original. Not this original one from 2010, yes. Um, yeah. and the reason it has those nine engines in there is to provide redundancy. Uh, that way of the, that the rocket can continue even if two of its engines shut down entirely during the process. Right. So they've had issues where they, I mean, they've actually tested it where they would shut down an engine on purpose and then fire it back up to make sure that, in fact, the the rocket would be able to continue and deliver its payload into orbit. Mm-hmm. So this was definitely something that was built into the design. Uh, also, what's really kind of cool is that uh, the the stages, stage one and stage two, they are separated by a different method than the way you would find in um, in in previous versions of launch vehicles. Now, normally a launch vehicle, the two stages would be connected with explosive bolts and you would blow the bolts and then stage one would fall away and stage two would ignite and continue to go up into orbit. Mm-hmm. Uh, but since they were hoping to create a rocket system that can be used multiple times, like the whole shebang, not just the shuttle bit. Yeah, they decided to go with something else. They went with uh, using uh, air pressure. They, they essentially had like uh, pneumatic bolts that would blast off with a uh, little little a blast of compressed air. So it wasn't explosive in the sense of like an actual uh, explosive device. It, mm-hmm. it would separate more, um, less violently, let's say. Gently. Yeah, gently is good. because a this soothing, was... easing blast <laughs> from high in Earth's right. or sky, or sky into the ocean. Yeah, really it was mostly to, to make sure that Things would remain safe for once the the Falcon would start to carry people, not just right, not right. just stuff. Mm-hmm. Stuff is replaceable. People are not. No. So uh, anyway, the if everything is working properly, when the engines ignite, uh, they they will burn for three minutes in that first stage. And uh, interesting fact: so at sea level, the Falcon Nine engines engines provide, and again, this is current Falcon Nines. 
provide 1.3 million pounds of thrust, which is 5,885 kilonewtons. But rocket thrust increases as altitude increases. So they just get more powerful as they go further up in the air. So once they get to space, the engines are putting out 1.5 million pounds of thrust, or 6,672 kilonewtons. So that's pretty awesome. Now, earlier rockets were slightly less powerful, but still significantly stronger than the Falcon 1. Mm -hmm. Not a big surprise with all the extra engines thrown in there. Uh, I'm just waiting for them to have the Falcon 11, so we can turn it all the way up to 11, um, which would make sense because I'm pretty sure Tesla's uh, vehicles have dials that go all the way up to 11. I think I think Musk is a fan of Spinal Tap. <laughs> so uh, now as the rocket's mass decreases, which you would expect to have happen, it's got fuel, it's burning fuel. So therefore, it's going to lose mass in the process of actually launching into space. The Falcon 9 engines gradually get throttled back to compensate so that it keeps acceleration within the right parameters. Because obviously, if you have the, the engines blasting at the same amount of thrust and the mass of the thing it's thrusting up into space is decreasing, then it would accelerate beyond what they had. They need, uh, needed. need it to do. Yeah. yeah. So interesting that you have to actually think about throttling back the engines as opposed to because, you know, getting stuff into space is hard. We talked about that. It's. It's yeah, hard you, to think. You, like, you would think that it would be full power. Right. That's not the way it works. Yeah. It's kind of cool. Uh, now, the second stage of the rocket has a single Merlin vacuum engine, not a vacuum cleaner engine. It's an engine that works in the vacuum of space. So useful for being in space. Yes. Yeah. You've got this pneumatic stage separation that separates once once that happens, the stage one starts to fall away. Stage two kicks in that one Merlin engine kicks in and provides one hundred eighty thousand pounds of force or 801 kilonewtons. So, you know, relatively modest compared to the actual stage one rocket, which makes sense because that was, again, nine engines versus one. Uh, and that one burns for 375 seconds, which is six minutes, 15 seconds for those who want to break it down like that. Uh, and then it'll get into its orbit. So the second stage engine can actually stop and start multiple times, which allows the Falcon 9 to place different payloads into different orbits. Uh, you group the payloads together. So if you have satellites that need to go into a certain orbit, you can release them and then continue the spacecraft further out mm -hmm. to deliver more payloads in higher orbits. It's uh, pretty right. cool. Yeah, yeah. This this allows, you know, everyone involved to save a lot of money because the actual launch is what's expensive. You know, once once you're up there, it's kind of like, yeah, just, just yeah. Toss, toss everything around wherever it needs to go. Right. That's okay. Great. Who's here for low Earth orbit? All right. Out you go. <laughs> yeah. It's one of those things where uh, it makes it... Uh, a, a viable business to work with these other companies we talked about in our first episode where we were talking about how, you know, a company might have a satellite that needs to put into orbit and another company may have a similar satellite that also needs to go in orbit as maybe a slightly different elevation. This would allow SpaceX to have uh, the opportunity to launch both in the same mission mm -hmm. and thus you you conserve and you end up making the whole endeavor less expensive for all individual parties. Mm -hmm. So pretty Pretty savvy move on the business side. Uh, pretty cool stuff. Now, beyond all that, also in 2010, SpaceX would land a contract with a satellite operator called Iridium for $492 million. This was the largest commercial space launch deal ever up to that time. And in a second test of the Falcon 9, SpaceX becomes the first private company to launch a spacecraft into orbit and then recover it after it orbits the Earth. 
So this is again pretty. It's it's, it's pretty, another pretty big. Yeah, yeah, yeah. another step on yeah. that on that plan. Uh, on the back of all of this this wonder and amazement, Musk would make the only a little bit far-reaching claim uh, that he would be sending astronauts into space within three years at only twenty million dollars a piece. Yeah, that's um that's that's a pittance compared to uh, previous missions. Sure, and spoiler alert, that did not happen. No. Um, no, it would take a little longer than three years because we still haven't sent anyone up into space. No humans have gone into space on a SpaceX vehicle yet. Right. So uh, if you're waiting to hear that magical fairy tale story, we don't have that. If it happened while we were recording, that's different. But uh, <laughs> as of the recording, it has not yet happened. Yes. Now, moving on to 2011, we have a groundbreaking ceremony for the uh, Vandenberg Air Force Base Space Launch Complex that SpaceX would use. Uh, now, at that point, SpaceX was valued at about $1.3 billion. Pretty impressive, considering that it only had had started back in 2002. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, and this Air Force Base that they were celebrating was not for them alone, right? No. It's, it's a yeah. government facility. Exactly. It's, yeah. it's essentially they're saying, hey... Do you mind if we use your your playground to launch our our, our rockets and Air Force is like, well, you know, we can work up a deal. Yeah. And that's exactly we can what work happened. that out. Um, meanwhile, over at NASA, the shuttle program was officially shut down in 2011 after the Atlantis's final flight, which returned to the Kennedy Space Center on July 21st. Uh, this means, among other things, that the amazing infrastructure that is the Kennedy Space Center and its launch pads would be rendered idle um, at a cost of like some $100,000 per month in maintenance. I don't think that's offset by tourists like me going to look around at the Kennedy Space Center. Not quite, no. Yeah. Um, so, you know, in turn, that means that you can bet NASA was pretty eager to start looking at, at ways to recoup that and start renting out those launch pads to private companies. Yes, so that'll become more important a little later on. Yes. Uh, in 2012, in May, SpaceX would launch a successful mission to have its Dragon spaceship dock with the International Space Station. So the Dragon spaceship is like a capsule. If you look at it, it kind of is reminiscent of something like one of the Apollo capsules. It looks kind of in that same sort of general shape. Uh, and it's not carrying any cargo on this first test. Uh, and there, it doesn't have any people aboard it on the first test, but it was successful in docking with the ISS. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. And the astronauts who were already up there could open the, the docked capsule and go right on inside. Which is pretty, uh, brave. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you sit there thinking, I mean, I'm sure they had all the instrumentation to prove that in fact it was perfectly safe, but just think of this, this unmanned capsule docks with the space station and it's, you know, docks to an airlock. And I can't imagine the amount of tension I would feel opening that airlock for the first time and not knowing for sure that everything on the other side was still OK. Um, I'm sure that they were like tethered in and I, I'm, th I'm sure that there are many safety precautions taken. It's just but... interesting to me. Like, oh, again, sure. no, again astronauts are a world apart from me. I'm too nervous to be able to do. Yeah, anything. I get anxious, like going to the grocery store. y'all. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about this Dragon spacecraft. It's yeah. pretty cool. So it's designed to deliver people and cargo to space, although, again. No people so far have gone anywhere. Uh, it specifically is designed to go to orbiting destinations like the ISS or satellites, as opposed to some longer mission to, say, the moon or Mars. It's not meant for that. Mm -hmm. uh, about how much stuff can it hold? 
Well, it can hold 883 cube feet of cargo, which is 25 cube meters, uh, on, at least on the way up. And it has a mass of 6,000 kilograms, which means it weighs 13,228 pounds. Now, the return payload, when it comes back to Earth, is 3,000 kilograms, or 6,614 pounds. And the return payload volume for the Dragon spacecraft is 388 cube feet, or 11 cube meters. And you might say, well, why, why is the difference? Where, where's the difference with the, the, the volume when it goes up versus the volume when it comes down? And so part of the capsule when it's going up is a connector that connects the capsule to the launch vehicle, right? And in that, in that, uh, area, you have an unpressurized chamber and inside the unpressurized chamber, you can have certain types of cargo, stuff that does not need to be protected in that way. So let's say that you have some extra satellites that you can just, you know, throw in the back. Mm-hmm. It's in the back of your truck, essentially. Yeah. You go up into space. Well, when you get up into space, the capsule, when it's going into reentry, will di- disconnect from that connector that originally uh, had it next mm-hmm. to the launch vehicle. And so the capsule itself will come down, which means that you can't carry as much back down as you could carry back up. Uh, now, why would you want to carry stuff down in the first place? Well, like we mentioned in the first episode... Occasionally, stuff aboard the ISS needs to be repaired or maintained, mm-hmm. and they can't necessarily do all of that on the station itself. Uh-huh. Or maybe they want to send little bits of scientific experiments back down to Earth. Right. And in that case, you would need to have a return a, vehicle. Exactly. Yeah. So that's what um, that would be used for. So uh, the pressurized section, which would be the one that would carry humans if we ever send any up in a Dragon space capsule, uh, can also carry cargo. And it has something called Draco thrusters. So these are these are thrusters. They're meant to provide uh, uh, propulsion and uh, some maneuverability in space. Mm-hmm. Developed by SpaceX. So uh, it, since it's the Dragon capsule, of course it's the Draco thrusters. Uh, there are eighteen of them spread across four pods. So two of the pods have four thrusters. Two of the pods have five thrusters. Now, the thrusters provide all this maneuverability whenever they're needing to, to dock with the ISS or whenever they're, they're trying to reposition themselves for reentry. Um, and each individual thruster is capable of creating 90 pounds of thrust. Now, the Dragon also has this unpressurized trunk that I was talking about. That's the part where it'll disconnect just as you start to go into, uh, reentry. And, uh, that's also why you're able to car- carry more stuff up than down, as I said before. On May 31st, the Dragon capsule returned to Earth safely, completing that first test mission of the capsule. And it's the first private spacecraft to dock with the International Space Station. So in August of 2011, SpaceX would send a Dragon spacecraft up again to pick up return cargo to bring back to Earth. And Elon Musk championed the mission as a demonstration of America being able to deliver cargo and to take cargo from the ISS for the first time since the space shuttle program was shuttered. Now, keep in mind, that particular capsule had not actually carried anything up to the station. It just brought stuff back down. Mm -hmm. But in October, (laughs) the Dragon capsule would be the first private spacecraft to complete a resupply mission to the ISS. So... By the end of 2011, it had done it all. They had had mm-hmm. a successful test docking. They had returned cargo safely to Earth, and they brought stuff up, supplies back up to the ISS. In order to support all of this, meanwhile, that uh, McGregor, Texas testing facility that I mentioned in the first episode was running at 18 hours a day, six days a week. Wow. And, you know, I, I've actually heard, I didn't include this in the notes, but recently... Uh, we're recording this in, in August of 2014, and very recently, 
there have been some news reports of former employees who are laid off. Uh, it, this happened very recently at uh, SpaceX, who have uh, also laid allegations that they were not allowed to take breaks that they would have legally been um, allowed to do mm-hmm. uh, and that they were not being paid sufficiently for overtime. So uh, whether or not any of that is true, I don't know. But mm. the, that yeah. that is an ongoing thing. But when you hear something like this about these facilities running these crazy amount of hours per day. Oh, yeah. Especially when I think McGregor only employs some 250 people today. I'm mm. not sure what the employment rate was back then, although I, I think that that's the that's just about the working team that they that they hire out. Yeah. So that, SpaceX is that's a, a lot. SpaceX a lot is a, yeah, exactly. SpaceX is a, as a full company has like 3000 employees. Sure. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, it's one of those things that that's an ongoing situation. So we don't have a lot to report about that particular issue, but you can imagine that there are people who are working really, really hard. And, um, I, I hope it turns out that they're being compensated, compensated appropriately. For right. Of okay. Course. But also in 2012, SpaceX would test something else called the grasshopper. Uh, this is a vertical takeoff and landing vehicle. Yeah. So it's a rocket that can take off and land vertically. So, Here's the reason why they want to test this other thing while the Falcon 9 is working. It's really kind of testing a a proof of concept that they could build a rocket that they could launch up into wherever. And then when it starts coming back down, they could maneuver it so it could land safely upright exactly the way it had taken off. Uh, it's got landing. You know, it's It's got struts, essentially, that act like landing gear. Mm-hmm. And the reason you would want that is if you sent anyone to someplace like Mars, it would allow them to, you know, come back be nice. You know, we've talked about a lot about Mars, both on this show and on our sister show, Forward Thinking. And uh, some, some plans don't involve the return ticket. I, I prefer the plans that involve the return ticket just yeah. for everyone's collective sanity. Yeah. You know, even people who think it's exciting to go to Mars, even if there's no way back, I'm not sure that you're going to feel the same way, say, five years on Mars. Or 10 years or 40 years yeah. or... or 40 minutes. Who knows? I mean, you might be like, wow, I really underestimated how boring it is up here and how deadly. So, uh, yeah, this would be a way of creating a vehicle that could potentially visit a distant surface and then take off again from it. Uh, now, this particular one is to is just designed to be a test, but it would hopefully be built into the stage one of Falcon 9 rockets, which would also make them reusable. Uh, in the sense of being able to actually land them so that you could recover them and the actual uh, reprocessing phase would be much shorter than if it were, you know, if you had to go out into the ocean and retrieve it from, you know, crashing in there. Right, sure. So now we move up to 2013. SpaceX announced a plan to launch a satellite into geostationary orbit, which is different from low Earth orbit. A geostationary orbit is one in which an orbiting body holds the same position in the sky relative to an observer on the ground. Uh, which means that if you're standing on the ground for a week, I mean, you know, I guess you're having people bring you snacks. But yeah, and look up the the satellite would be there the entire time. Yeah, it would maintain its relative position to you that whole time. Uh, and in order to do that, you have to actually put that out a little further than your low Earth orbit. Also, uh, I should all clarify that geostationary uh, orbits are a subset of geosynchronous orbits. A geosynchronous orbit is one in which an orbiting body will return to a given position along its path after a given amount of time. So you might say that you have a satellite that has kind of a figure eight type orbit over the southeastern United States. And mm-hmm. then every 
three days the satellite is over the same point of reference along that pathway. That's a that one is a geosynchronous orbit. Geostationary is very specific in that it maintains that that particular location. So we would have like a geostationary satellite directly above Atlanta. That would be an example. Um, but yeah, in order to get it out there, you got to get it pretty far out into orbit. It's it you know, your your local ones are much closer in. Uh, yeah, low, low Earth orbit satellites might be some uh, 1,200 miles. That's 1,900 kilometers out from Earth's surface. Uh, geostationary satellites are something like 22,000 miles or 35,000 kilometers out. And just for perspective, because I don't know about you guys, but but at those ranges of numbers, my brain starts to go, I don't yeah. have no idea what that means. I, I can't compare that to things uh, that mean stuff to me. Uh a thousand two hundred miles is something like driving from New York City to Miami. Great road trip. Uh, it, it can be. It can be. <laughs> Ninety five is pleasant through certain parts. Sure. Um, and uh, twenty two thousand miles, by contrast, is like eighty eight percent of the circumference of the entire planet. So a longer road trip is what you're saying. A very much longer road trip. And, and an ocean you, trip. Yes, and, uh, you would have yeah. to have a submarine or jet skis. Gotcha. Maybe. I'm okay. not sure. Well, I, I'm, I'll, I'll hold off on planning that trip. But yeah, so that that same year, SpaceX would put in a bid to lease uh, one of the Kennedy Space Center's launch pads, right? You were talking about this earlier. Uh, yeah, they the, the Kennedy Space Center finally opened up one of their launch pads, 39A to be specific, which is like the historic Apollo mission launch pad Wow! Uh, out to a private company. And SpaceX put in one of the bids. The other bidder was Blue Origin, which is Amazon founder Jeff Bezos's. Space company. In this corner, <laughs> we have Elon Musk. And in this corner, Jeff Bezos. I love the thought. I mean, we've done episodes on both of these people, right? We've done, oh, a, yeah. we've done a Bezos episode. And we've done a Musk episode. And they're both these very dynamic, wonderful personalities yeah. that have these big dreams and all of this stuff. So, you know, we'll come out the winner <laughs> either way. But <laughs> as it turns out, the story ends, uh, ends up with, with a single entity winning that bid, right? Well, that was actually part of the bidding war here. I, well, it wasn't really a bidding war as much as it was just a general political and legal kerfuffle because Blue Origin and Jeff Bezos were really aiming for this pad being opened up to multi-company mm, use. I see. They, they they wanted, you know, many people to be able to come in and, and use this thing. And, you know, under the argument that leasing to a single company would put that company in basically monopoly territory as far as space launches go. On the other hand, SpaceX was really the only company that was prepared to actually use a launch site like that. Even so, Blue Origin had never had a successful test at that point. So, so SpaceX so. might be saying like, well, that's all well and good, but we're the ones doing stuff. And if it just lays dormant, then it's not doing anyone any good anyway. Yeah. And they would eventually win that bid in December of 2013. Sadly, it was not the way I had proposed when we were talking about this before the episode where I said all all uh, all disagreements among entrepreneurs should be settled in the Thunderdome. As as our ancestors would have had it. Yes, yes. In fact, uh, you know, you bust a deal and you face the wheel, and that's no, wait, that's a different part of the movie. Anyway, yeah, 2014. <laughs> 2014. So we're up to this year, at least the year we're recording this. For those of you in the future who are listening to us, I hope you found it quaint. But in May of 2014, SpaceX would unveil the design for the Dragon Version 2 spacecraft, and we all thought it looked gorgeous. Because it is. It also has 
the crew capacity for seven crew members. Yeah, it looks it looks like Apple designed the interior of this thing, right? If you ever look at the the controls, all right. If you get a chance, go on Google Image Search and look at what the Apollo spacecraft control panel looked like. It looks kind of like the Millennium Falcon. It's all these little switches and buttons and things little like little lights that go blip. Yeah, nothing. Nothing looks like it would control a spacecraft in the sense of you know being able to manually take control of this thing. The the one that was unveiled, the concepts at least for the Dragon version two console. Look like it was designed by Apple. You have these no- enormous flat panel displays, this very elegant looking control scheme set up. It looks the way you would think a science fiction spacecraft uh, control would look. It's pretty, pretty beautiful. Now, again, these are concepts, so we'll wait well, yeah, to see yeah, what well, the final one looks right. like. But anyway, it will, according to SpaceX, it will be able to land propulsively almost anywhere on Earth. So you don't have to worry about a, a window opening up for you to be able to land at a specific location. Right, yeah. yeah, that was one of those big limiting factors for the, the shuttle program, right? Like if you missed that window, you had to wait until you came back you around. came back around, sure, right. So, um, which is important because it's meant to be reusable. Yes. Uh, you know, after being processed and refueled, it can go right back into service. Yeah, which is kind of crazy. And it will have eight Super Draco engines built into the sidewalls of the Super spacecraft. Super Draco. Sorry, yeah. sorry, but I just talked over the fact that they're, they're building these right into the sidewalls of the spacecraft. Absolutely, yeah. The idea being that if there's a problem during launch, the Super Draco thrusters can actually allow the capsule to detach from the launch vehicle and potentially save the lives of the astronauts inside. That would be, you know, amazing. It'd be a really important development in this kind of spacecraft. They can produce 120,000 pounds of axial thrust. Uh, and um, also the Super Draco have engine chambers that were created in a 3D printer. It's the first time that an actual working part of a space engine has been built by a 3D printer. Not a pr- not a prototype. That's mm-hmm. then that's normal. Right? Oh, sure. That's that's par for the course. No, but the actual bits that yeah. are going into the space. Yeah, it's kind of interesting and. And amazing. And one of those, and again, it really brings home the fact that 3D printing is playing a very large role in, in multiple industries. So it's, I was really blown away by that when I heard that. I thought, surely they mean that they just printed the prototype and tested it. No, these are the actual chambers themselves. In July 2014, SpaceX received approval from the Federal Aviation Administration, or the FAA, to build a launch facility in Texas, which would be the first purely commercial launch site. This is different from relying on that Air Force facility or leasing the launch pad at the Kennedy Space Center. Mm -hmm. And they're hoping to support 12 launches per year. Uh, It's a pretty impressive site. You know, it's not huge. It's just 70 acres. It's in a town called Boca Chica Beach which is about 20 miles outside of the larger town slash area of Brownsville in Texas near the Mexican border. Mm. The U.S. Census has identified this area as being the poorest in the entire country. Thirty six percent of its residents live below the poverty line. Um, the spaceport's going to be an eighty five million dollar project or is projected to be so right now. Uh, which is going to be bolstered by $15.3 million in funds from two Texas organizations, one being the Texas Enterprise Fund, which makes perfect sense, and the second being the Spaceport Trust Fund. 
which apparently exists. <laughs> so that's a thing. So that's a thing. Um, and uh, and yeah, lo- local government is pretty excited about the some 300 jobs that the construction is likely to create in the area and, and the 150 or so staff members that it's likely to hire once it's complete. Also, all the tourism and stuff like that that it's going to bring, hopefully. Yeah. And then you also have to have the businesses just to support the existence oh. of this thing. Oh, right? sure, sure. Yeah, you're going to have to build a lot more Starbucks or whatever it is. Which is, that's great news for this town. So oh, yeah, yeah. The, the potential for uh, some some real rejuvenation of that town's economy is pretty exciting. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and, of course, Texas and Elon Musk have a standing, if slightly tumultuous, relationship. Uh, <laughs> you know, in addition to housing that, that testing facility, Texas was also one of the first states to have Tesla charging stations. Um, although, as of this recording, it can't actually sell Tesla vehicles in the state due to car sales laws that preserve dealerships being the sole distributors of consumer vehicles. You, you can't have a, a company sell directly to its customers. Right. Um, and for more on that, you can check out um, our two-parter, The Tesla Tale, which published in March of 2014. And rumor has it that State Governor Rick Perry is really trying to change this whole thing because it would be pretty good for the economy of the state, many people argue. But yeah, the laws have not budged mm-hmm. quite yet. And also, Texas is on that short list of states that may eventually house Tesla's Gigafactory battery plant. Yeah, the one that would be making the uh, bat- just like Musk wants the space industry to be something that the United States can really uh, focus in on internally. Same thing for pr- producing the batteries that would go into electric vehicles and improving the batteries and improving the working conditions around all of that. Yeah. Yeah, so important stuff. So. Uh, yeah, the the only confusing thing about this spaceport for me is that the announcement about it really only came a couple months after SpaceX signed that lease for that Kennedy Space Center 39A launch pad. Yeah, but that was for what, like, you know, six months or something? 20 years. Whoa! All right, so they're going to have their own space, and they're leasing the other, like, uh, dormant space. Maybe they are like kind of edging everybody else out. I don't know. Um, yeah, I'm not sure what's going on there. I'm, I'm yeah, you know, it's sublease the. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm figuring that maybe they're going to try to use their own launch pad for for commercial purposes for helping other companies get into space using mm-hmm. that infrastructure and maybe preserve the Kennedy area for their own stuff or maybe for their NASA related trips or something like that. Yeah, that's a possibility. Uh, well, and and maybe it'll be one of those things where. Certain types of launch vehicles will be able to use their one facility and others might need a larger one. For example, they, you know, there's we'll talk about the Falcon Heavy at the end of this episode. And that one makes the Falcon 9 look like a junior. Uh, just as the Falcon 9 dwarfed the Falcon 1, the yeah, Falcon it, Heavy dwarfs the Falcon 9. Right. Makes it look like a paper airplane. Yeah. I mean, you got to you got to do this. You have to keep on making larger and larger vehicles so that we can finally get to Star Destroyer. I mean, we've all seen where this leads. <laughs> Is is that the reason scientifically? Yes. Okay. One of the other things uh, that is kind of interesting about this, and, and this is one of those things, I just came across this while I was doing some research on SpaceX, and this may or may not indicate anything in the in the future, but we've also talked about the Hyperloop. Uh, right. This concept of this enclosed train system that would be able to move at really super fast speeds. Apparently, SpaceX is now the company that owns Hyperloop.com, at least from what I was able to find. Okay. It it used to belong to someone else. That uh, ownership has apparently transferred to SpaceX. I have not completely fact-checked this, so this could be wrong, 
But if that is possible, can you just imagine that the commute to go to work at your space factory is on the Hyperloop and you live in some other town in Texas and you just in like 15 minutes you're there? It'd be pretty incredible. I wonder I wonder if company employees, if, you know, they actually could buy Tesla vehicles in the state of Texas, uh, if they would get get like an employee discount on an electric oh, car man. or something. It, it, it's funny because this description just makes us, us think that this this very tiny town, this this town that's been struggling with poverty could transform into like a super future tech place. Yeah. In in a sp- span of like a decade or so. Like the new the center of the new space age. That's pretty crazy. Well, meanwhile, to to kind of conclude this conversation, there's some other things we have to talk about. One of those is that SpaceX has run into some political opposition. And there are a lot of different ways of looking at this, but some politicians are claiming that the company should be accountable to taxpayers, which is a little odd because it's a private company. It's not. It's a contractor. It's not a government organization. And some folks like Phil, the bad astronomer plate, have hypothesized that the politicians are actually trying to protect interests in their home states because the the states involved happen to be the same states that have large manufacturing facilities owned and operated by companies like Lockheed and Boeing. So when the representatives of those states happen to be the ones who are raising objections, it does raise questions about, okay, well, where are your objections coming from? Is it from just an honest place of concern or are you trying to protect a large company that falls in your constituency? Right. Yeah. So tough questions. On top of that, the company, SpaceX, has actually sued the U.S. government, specifically over military contracts between the U.S. Air Force and United Launch Alliance. Uh, that being the organization, I yeah. guess, that both Boeing and Lockheed belong to yeah. in order to preserve their own best commercial interests for space technologies. Exactly. And so SpaceX says that those contracts were awarded unfairly and the bidding process was non-competitive. In other words... Uh, that the Air Force went ahead and stuck with its longtime partner, uh, United Launch Alliance, rather than going to the lowest bidder. Now, if those suspicions are true, that would imply that the politicians are playing favorites and potentially that the Air Force would be wasting money on another company. When on they could more be, expensive contracts that they yeah, could be right. Yeah. They could be they could be doing the same thing for less money. And since that money ultimately comes from the United States taxpayer, this is this should be a big deal to citizens. They oh, should sure, be concerned sure. about it. And it's even more complicated than that, though, right? Because yep. uh, uh, Russia and and the Russian technology companies come back into it. That's right, because ULA ends up getting some components from Russia, uh, specifically from a company that is largely owned by the Russian government. And as we have relations between the United States and Russia become more complicated. Uh, the situation in the Ukraine obviously is an example of that. Then you also have these, these complications that arise. There, there are concerns about, uh, security. There are concerns about, uh, fairness. It's, it's all wrapped up into this big political mess, right? Yeah. So, um, uh, again, another argument SpaceX makes is if you go with us, it's all in the United States. You don't Simple. have to worry about funding a, 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 a government that you may have disagreements with. Right. Um, unless you're disagreeing with yourself, in which case we really can't help you. Um, but at any rate, it's you know, messy is what we're getting down to. And then on the government side of the issue. 
Oh, right, because it's certainly not one-sided. Yeah, I mean, you have to look at all sides of the... I, I always try to look at all the sides of any given issue and not just try to jump on to one or the other. So on the government side of things, you have to understand, first of all, the politicians are citing that there are anomalies in SpaceX tests and launches so far, which may or may not hold merit. It all really depends upon your point of view, because space launches are potentially really hazardous. So you don't want anomalies, obviously. You want it to be as predictable and rep- uh, replicatable as possible. So that way, of course, I guess say replicable, but you want to make sure for that, for the safety of the astronauts, right? And the cargo, I mean, everything. Oh, sure. And, and just the money that you've poured into it. Exactly. So uh, on the other hand, you know, space launches are also really complicated. And even companies that have been in the industry for decades, way longer than SpaceX. It can have anomalies. Yeah. 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 So the question is, are the anomalies that are the quote unquote anomalies that are in these SpaceX launches, do they fall inside that same sort of set of parameters as what you would find in any other business? Exactly. So I don't have the answers to those questions. I don't know, really. Like, this is not so simple as to say SpaceX is right and the government is wrong. Or the government is right and SpaceX is wrong. It's There are a lot of factors you have to take into consideration. And frankly, I don't have all the information, so I can't really come down on it. Yeah. Uh, I hope that SpaceX is able to to be really in the mix for these competitive yeah. projects, because I would love to see that. I think competition is always a good thing. Oh, of course. Yeah, no. And I and I think that the thing is that nobody has that information right this very moment. Yeah. This is all very much ongoing. And uh, and but but hopefully it'll come to a resolution for the best of all of us soon. Absolutely. So speaking of the future, since we're talking about soon, this is soon and not so soon. Uh, but next year, 2015, SpaceX plans to do a test launch of a super powerful rocket. This is the Falcon Heavy that we talked about earlier. This would be the launch vehicle that would allow us to to actually go to places like the moon or Mars. With people. yeah, With people, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, now, this one, you know, the first stage of the Falcon 9 was a rocket that had nine engines. The first stage of the Falcon Heavy is made up of three Falcon 9 engine cores. For a grand total of 27 Merlin engines. Yep. Creating nearly 4 million pounds of thrust, 17,615 kilonewtons. And capable of launching a payload that would weigh 53 metric tons into orbit. The second stage of the Falcon Heavy launch vehicle, same as the Falcon 9. No, once you get up there. Yeah. If you ever look at pictures of what this is going to look like, it looks like a, it looks essentially like a Falcon 9 rocket with two other Falcon 9 stage ones strapped to the bottom of it. And so it's really fat on the bottom and skinny on the top. Because you've got a regular Falcon 9 Stage 2 and the payload at the mm-hmm. top of it. Uh, pretty amazing if they are able to actually make this work. Yeah, and, and that sounds like a feat of engineering that I am so far out of the comprehension of. I would, I would love to see the first launch of this, right? I would love to be present for the test launch of the Falcon Heavy. I am sure it's going to be an awesome sight. And I mean that in the classic sense of, of the word awesome. Awe. Yeah. yeah. Uh, now, there are some rumors that have been around pretty much since SpaceX started uh, that the company will go public. But as of this recording, that has not yet happened. That doesn't stop the rumors from going around. I mean, they've been they've really picked up since 2013. Right, right. Musk says that he has no near term plans to go public and likely he would wait until SpaceX's Mars colonial transporter is in service. That would mean the actual vehicle that would be capable of taking people to Mars. 
whether or not it would actually be people, it would probably be, you know, unmanned missions at first. I can, I can see where, I mean, you know, Musk is such a, such a personal driver of all of his businesses. And so I can absolutely see where he would want to retain that kind of control right. over everything that they're doing. And not have to answer to, to a board, yeah. to, to a board that does not necessarily have him as the head of it. <laughs> Cause he is on the board of directors right now, as sure. is the president and COO. Uh, she is also on the board. But yeah, when you have stakeholders, when you have, when you have, uh, uh, you know, stockholders, I should say, then you've got to answer to a lot more people. And uh, often you may, if you're in a, a, an industry that requires as much risk as the space industry, you may have stakeholders who say, I'm not really, yeah, I, I yeah. think, can we make money some other way? Yeah, I could see you getting pressured pretty easily into, you know, not doing these crazy things like yeah. retiring the Falcon after one successful <laughs> mission. Yeah, mission. exactly. <laughs> so it, it is interesting. We'll have to keep an eye on it and see if, in fact, SpaceX ever does go public and become a, an, uh, in a publicly traded company. But um it's uh, it's been a fascinating journey just to learn more mm-hmm. about this company and what what goes into it and uh, and what their plans are. And I I have to tell you before I started researching this I was <sighs> skeptical is probably not strong enough a word for it but very doubtful that we'd be ever able to get anyone to Mars by 20 by the mid 2020s. Even now I'm st- I'm skeptical but I'm more willing to believe it based upon the incredible Incredible accomplishments this company has done so far. And it seems like they're gearing up for something pretty big. So. Yeah. Yeah. That's I, I mean, I can't wait to find out what happens next. So mm-hmm. for those of you out there who also cannot wait for us to cover yet another interesting topic on tech stuff and you're wondering why we haven't done it yet. Here's the thing. You got to tell us. Because our telepathic powers have been fading rapidly. There, when we're in the studio, all of the sound foam really interferes. Yeah, all I all I can get is from I get from Noel the idea of uh, Hey guys, um, it's okay for me to eat these uh, these almonds. And from Lauren, I get I will stab you if you don't shut up. So I can't eat. I need food. And for me, I just get the sound of wind. That's it. Nothing going on upstairs. Dial tone. Right. So, guys, you need to write us, is what I'm getting at. You need to let us know what you want to hear. So send us an email. Our address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. Or drop us a line on Twitter, Facebook, or Tumblr. Our handle at all three is techstuffhsw. We look forward to hearing from you. And you'll hear from us again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 